Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, parents, and friends. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Robert Parham, Assistant Professor of Commerce at the McIntyre School of Commerce at the University of Virginia. Professor Parham conducts research on the growth of high research and development firms. Most recently, he documented how the transfer of firm-specific knowledge to new employees creates a constraint on the pace of firm growth. Before joining the McIntyre faculty, he was head of cybersecurity at the Israeli Intelligence Academy and a cybersecurity project manager at Microsoft. In this podcast, Professor Parham will speak to us about cryptocurrency, what it is, and why it's an important topic for us to understand. So I'm going to pass the program over to Robert and to help us understand this complex and important topic. So please take it away. Thank you, Susan. I'm very happy to be here uh, and talk about crypto assets. My first comment would be calling it cryptocurrency is a misleading name. Let's call it crypto asset, and I will explain very quickly why. Uh, the point I would like to begin with is that humans are kind of weird in the sense that if we look at human behavior, what we see is that for millennia, we've been digging into the earth, extracting this fairly useless yellow metal, minting it into bars, and then locking them under the earth again. Like this seems a weird behavior, right? If I was an alien coming to earth and looking at that, I'd be like, what are these guys doing? Right Now, some people might object to the idea that this yellow metal is useless and will say, yeah, but we use it for jewelry, etc. And I would claim that they are mixing cause and effect, right? We use it for jewelry because we as humanity, as a civilization, decided that this is our store of value. And then we wear it upon ourselves to show everyone that we have a lot of value, right? Otherwise, it's kind of useless. And then comes the question, why gold? Like, why have we all decided that this yellow metal is our universal store of value? And the answer is, interestingly, that if I was an alien, I would likely use gold as well. The reason comes from the periodic table of elements. Look at the periodic table of elements and ask yourself, which of the things there would you like to use as a store of value? I have... 20 bananas today, I can eat only three of them. I want to store the rest of them for next week. Well, if they're bananas, they're going to be rotten by next week. What do I do? I give them to my neighbor and he gives me something that I can use to buy bananas next week. What is that something? Well, that's something we have agreed is gold. Why gold? Well, if it was any kind of gas, then between now and next week, it might escape the container I put it in. It's not a very useful store of value. If it was a liquid, it might spill. Not a useful store of value either. If it's not a noble metal, then it might rust. You know, it will interact with other elements and it will go bad. So if I want to store value from now to later, the best thing I can do is go for the noble metals. Noble metals, gold, silver, platinum, palladium. There are a couple more. Let's put them aside. So why are these? Again, they are scarce, right? We don't have too much of them. 
so we can use them as a store of value and they will not go bad. So that is how we as humanity sort of colluded, if you'd like, on, on gold as our universal store of value. It just makes sense. But that brings us to the question of what are the core features of a store of value, right? What are the things that are needed for something to become a store of value? To allow me to exchange bananas for that thing and then be fairly certain that in a week or in a month, I'll be able to exchange that thing for bananas, okay? The two defining features of a store of value, we economists have concluded, are scarcity and durability, okay? So you need it to be scarce. Like if I'm using seashells as a store of value, then I go to my neighbor, he gives me a bunch of seashells and I keep them for a week. During that week, all of my neighbors went and collected more seashells from the shore. And then I come and want to exchange my seashells for bananas and no one will give me bananas for seashells because everyone has tons of seashells. It's not a very useful store of value because it's not scarce. The next thing is durability. I want it to survive between now and next week or next year or next millennium, right? So I need it to not go bad during that period. So in that sense, Bitcoin, which is the main crypto asset that I want to talk about today, because trying to cover all crypto assets is a no-go because the field has exploded so much. Bitcoin can be thought of as the digital equivalent of a gold bar. Okay, so you've got a gold bar, it's scarce because gold is only that much percentage of the earth's crust. It's durable because it's one of the elements, right? That's why they are elements. They don't um, uh, go bad anymore. Um, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. Why? Because of the Bitcoin algorithm. The way the Bitcoin system works is that there is a highly predictable number of Bitcoins minted every year. And we know how many Bitcoins will be minted every year with precision. And we know that by 2140, when we finish minting the last Bitcoin, we will get to 21 million Bitcoins. So it's scarce. There are only given amount of them and that's it. What about durability? Bitcoin is durable because the internet is durable. DARPA, the, Defen the Defense Advanced Research uh, Authority of the US government designed the internet to withstand the nuclear war. That's what the internet was designed for back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, right? And if the internet can survive a nuclear war, so can the Bitcoin network that keeps track of how many Bitcoins does everyone own. So in that sense, Bitcoin is a scarce, durable thing, right? We don't care what the thing is as long as we have a thing that is scarce and durable. In that sense, Bitcoin is best thought of, in my opinion, as just a bar of digital gold. And now we want to ask ourselves, okay, wait. So we have some thoughts and some economic opinions about gold. Do they map to Bitcoin that well? Okay, let's talk about why Bitcoin is scarce and durable and about the problem of scarcity that Bitcoin solved, right? How did Bitcoin get into our lives and initiated 
this revolution of cryptocurrencies or crypto assets. Let's talk about that. So the problem of scarcity is that computer systems are inherently unscarce. What do I mean by that? You remember the days of Blockbuster that used to be a thing? You'd go to the Blockbuster store and there was this hit that just hit the Blockbusters and everyone already rented out the cassettes uh, and you couldn't get that movie because there was a given number of these cassettes in your local Blockbuster store, right? It was a scarce resource in the store. That doesn't happen anymore with Netflix, does it? You don't go and try to watch a Netflix movie and it tells you, hey, sorry, uh, seven people are watching this movie right now. You can't watch it. You need to wait till one of them finishes watching it, right? We learned that in the Napster era. Once you have a digital copy of something, making more copies of it is super easy in a computer system. What we economists call a zero marginal cost, right? I can make more copies with almost zero cost. I have one copy of a song, everyone can have a copy of that song. I have one copy of a movie, everyone can have a copy of that movie. That brings us to a problem because if I have one copy of a dollar, a digital dollar of sorts, and I can make a trillion copies of that dollar, that immediately means that that dollar is worthless. It doesn't have value, right? Because if I have one copy and I can make a trillion more, then we're back to the seashell problem, okay? So the big, big innovation of Satoshi Nakamoto, the guy or guys, we don't know, a, uh, a puzzle uh, that invented the Bitcoin system was the introduction of scarcity into a computer system. Using very advanced mathematics, a lot of cryptography, they found a way to make sure that you can't make copies of your dollar, or in that case, of your Bitcoin. If I own a Bitcoin, I cannot make copies of it, right? Everyone will be able to tell that these are copies. These are not the real thing. Hence, that Bitcoin is truly scarce. This idea, the ideas that were presented in the paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, published in 2008, these ideas are the underpinning of everything going on today. The introduction of scarcity into computer systems was the key feature that broke this revolution of ours, okay? So this is what we're looking at. We're looking at scarcity. We're looking at durability. Let's talk about a few more Bitcoin design concepts that are interesting in my opinion. And again, we're talking Bitcoin but that's mostly because it's the template, right? Like Dogecoin, that was just take the Bitcoin code, change a few numbers here and there, publish that as a new coin, Dogecoin. They're all pretty much the same. There are differences, there are innovations. I don't want to say that all of the crypto assets are the same, but they're all based on this uniform layer of Bitcoin. Okay, so let's talk about some design concepts. The first design concept of Bitcoin that is important to understand is that money is just memory. What do I mean by money is memory? This is a deep point in sort of financial economics. Money is memory of past transactions. When I walk into a store and give a person, the person at the store, 
a $20 bill and that person gives me something for that $20 bill, what has just happened? Okay. What happened is that I provided evidence to the person at the store that I, at some point in the past, provided someone else with services worth $20 and that someone else gave me this $20 bill as evidence that I've provided these services. Now, many of us, many of us provide these services in the form of cuteness and meaning services to our parents, right? That's where we get our initial money. But later on, we provide labor services to companies and that's where we get our money. So essentially, it's a memory of a past transaction. The $20 bill itself is a memory of the time in which I worked for an hour for my company and my company gave me $20, okay? So in that sense, all money is just memory of past transactions. And this is not a novel concept, right? The, the ancient Assyrians and uh, uh, the residents of the city of Uruk, the first major civilizational hub on earth, knew these things. They had barley-backed money, right? So in that sense, all money is, is memory of transactions. The Medici ledger, the ledger of the first modern bank, is another just ledger of transactions. This person gave us that much money. We gave that person that much money. You sum all of the columns in that ledger and you get how much money this person is owed or owes us. This is how money works in modern uh, banks as well. A bank is just a centralized ledger. Banks have ledgers. They keep them on big computers uh, secured in data centers. Whenever I go to the supermarket and swipe my credit card, the thing that happens is that another transaction is added to the bank's ledger that says money was transferred from Robert's account to the Wegman's account. It's just another line of the ledger. In that sense, Bitcoin is just another ledger. It's just a decentralized ledger. There is not one bank server sitting somewhere documenting all of the transactions, but rather these transactions are kept by everyone. Everyone participating in the Bitcoin global network has a copy of this ledger and they all need to agree with each other about the copies of their ledgers. This is where the cryptography in crypto comes in. We won't dive into that, but essentially, Keeping this decentralized ledger is where the magic of cryptography comes into this game, okay? Bitcoin do not exist. There are no actual Bitcoins anywhere. What we have is this decentralized ledger that says, Robert got these many Bitcoins from that address. Hence, Robert owns these many Bitcoins, okay? This is all there is, just a list of transactions of who got how many Bitcoins from whom. And the blockchain, right? We all heard of the blockchain. The blockchain is just a way of keeping track of the pages of that ledger. The blockchain is a chain of blocks. Each block is a page of the ledger that says, hey, in these few minutes, these are the transactions that happened. Let's add them to the book of our ledger. That's all there is there. Okay, it's a ledger, it's a distributed ledger spanned across the internet and hence cannot be destroyed even by a nuclear war. 
though, you know, if you ruin all of the computers on earth, maybe you can destroy Bitcoin. That's what it is. It's just a ledger saying who owns what. Now, a lot of people are very interested in the pricing and the valuation of Bitcoin, right? That's how we all heard about it, because of the crazy price jumps, etc. The one thing I have to say to people when they look at the price of Bitcoin, okay? Look at it in logarithmic axis. What do I mean by that? Usually, when we look at a graph of something, on the left, on the left, um, y-axis, we have the prices, $5,000, $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, etc. When you look at financial phenomena in linear axis, you're making a big mistake. Finance is exponential, just like coronavirus, COVID is exponential. And COVID taught us that looking at exponential phenomena in linear terms is a mistake. In the beginning days of COVID, everyone that looked at it in linear scales, like just couldn't say what's going on. Looking at these things in exponential scale makes much more sense. This is not just true for the price of Bitcoin. It is also true for the price of the S&P 500. Here's an exercise to your interested listeners. At home, look at the S&P 500 price graph at various long periods of time, first in linear scales and then in log scales. I promise you will deduce very different things from these two views. Try it at home, see what happens. The important thing to know about the price of Bitcoin is that it is solely, only, with no exception, determined by supply and demand. That's it. There is nothing else to it. Bitcoin is worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it and nothing else. If someone is willing to pay $35,000 for a single Bitcoin, that's the price of Bitcoin. Supply and demand. No other mechanisms in the background, no cost of mining it, no nothing. The only driver of the price of Bitcoin is how much anyone is trying, willing to pay for it. And currently, People are willing to pay a lot of money for it because of reasons. What are those reasons? So my last point I want to leave you with is the idea of the Bitcoin bubble. Okay, Everyone says, hey, is that a bubble? What's going on here, etc.? I have a question. My question is this. Say you buy a bar of gold and you hold this bar of gold forever. How much money will this bar of gold make for you? What we in finance call, what is the discounted cash flow analysis of this bar of gold? I can do that for when I buy a stock. If I buy an Apple stock, then the Apple stock will yield dividends. It will spew out money. Money will come out magically out of the Apple stock and I will have more money in my pocket every year, right? But when I buy a bar of gold, no money is coming out of it right? In fact, money is going into it. Why? Because I need to pay all of these guards that are guarding the underground vaults that where I'm storing my bar of gold. The discounted cash flow analysis, the value, as we call it, of a bar of gold is negative, right? If I buy a bar of gold and hold it forever, it's just going to cost me money. 
then why are people buying the bar of gold? Why is the value of all bars of gold in the world not zero? Well, the answer is simple. There's an asset bubble in the price of gold. What do I mean by that? We buy a bar of gold and we expect rationally that sometime down the line, someone will come and pay us more for this bar of gold than we initially paid for it. That is the only value of the bar of gold. The fact that we believe someone will pay us more money in the future, right? We economists call that an asset bubble. An asset bubble is when the price of an asset deviates from its value, from its discounted cash flow significantly and for an extended period. Gold has been deviating from its value for the past, I don't know, five, 10, 12,000 years, right? It's been a very long asset bubble. So is Bitcoin a bubble? Yes, it is, definitely. Okay, you buy a Bitcoin, it spews out no money. However, gold has been that bubble for the last 12,000 years, okay? So the fact that rational asset bubbles exist is something we need to contend with. It's okay, they exist, we can live with them. So these are my thoughts. Uh, as always, this is not a recommendation to invest in crypto assets. They are a highly volatile, supremely risky asset class. Uh, but these are my thoughts for now. Thank you, Susan. Well, thank you so much, Professor Parham. You gave us a lot to think about, um, a lot to research for ourselves. And um, I really appreciate all of that information. And I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with all of us. And I want to thank everybody for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at alumni.virginia.edu backslash learn. We look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.